Great. Good morning. Let, let, let's uh, begin by reading the scriptures again this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Uh, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but, I, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Strengthen us with it now and help us in every way to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, last night I mentioned about the Bible's teaching about the church being the body of Christ. And um, somehow we've really lost and forgotten that in our day. And, and uh, one guy, I, I said one time, the baptism unites you to Christ. And this fellow told me, he said, no, that's wrong. It unites you to the church. I said, well, he said, what do you say to that? I said, well, apart from the fact that Paul says it unites you to Christ, what is the church? And it was almost as if he had never thought, I mean, he knows the church is the body of Christ. To be united to the church is to be united to Christ because the church is his body. And this, but somehow or other, we, in our minds, we know it, but we think the church is not really, we're not talking about the local church. We're talking about the, what we call, I guess, sometimes the invisible church. But you see, the fact is that we think of, that, that is not the way the Bible speaks. We think the local church is just a human organization, merely pictures the universal church which we think consists only of those chosen to eternal salvation. And we hold this in spite of the clear statements in our creeds. You see, this is something that's interesting. The Westminster Confession says in chapter 25, when it calls the invisible church, uh, I'm sorry, the visible church, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. That's not talking about the invisible church which the Confessionist defines as the whole number of the elect, which if that's the definition, and I think that's, that's okay, but that you see the invisible church doesn't exist except in the mind of God. We can't see that. Whenever we hear about the church in the Bible, we're talking about the church as it exists in a local community that has a mailing address. You can actually go to it. You know, you, you could look it up on Google and follow Google Maps to the place. So that, the statement in our confession, in our creeds, actually reflects more what the Bible teaches. That's the way Paul and Jesus and the other apostles speak of the church. And we see an example of this here in Paul's first letter to Timothy. He's giving Timothy directions for how he is to order the church in Ephesus. Timothy is the pastor. And he says, prayer is to be offered by all men uh, for all king, kings and all in authority. Women are not to lead in worship. They're not to hold the office of teaching and ruling in the church. The minister is a representative of Christ, the second Adam. He needs to be a man. Therefore, he's a true man, just like the first Adam and just like Jesus. The church needs to be ruled by elders and with the assistance of deacons who fit, meet the qualifications God lays down for leadership of his people. And then Paul reminds Timothy why he's telling him all this. He says, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The Jews mocked the church. Um, it wasn't, they didn't have a temple, they said. You don't have a temple, you don't have priesthood, you don't have sacrifices. 
uh, the Gentiles made fun of the church. The church seemed ridiculous to them. It didn't look like religion to the Gentiles, to the pagans of the day. But though the Jews mocked the church, the Gentiles ridiculed the church. Paul says, you need to tell your people that the Ephesus, the glory of what they are. They are the church of the living God. It's not a mere gathering of people who profess Jesus as Lord and come together to meet, to get together and have some fun together. It's not a, merely a place of fellowship. In spite of the failings and the weaknesses of the members, in spite of the imperfections that are true in the church in Ephesus, it is the new and more glorious temple of God. It is a more glorious temple than the temple in Jerusalem ever was. It is the center of the new Israel. It is the new Jerusalem. It's the glorious heavenly city. It is the holy Mount Zion. And perhaps most astonishing of all, Paul says it is the support and the foundation of the truth. He says you need to understand how vital your local church is. And we want to say, well, thanks, but that's not us. We're not the pillar of ground. Really, we got a whole lot of problems. That's all true. You're, you got a whole lot of problems. I got a whole lot of problems. We all have a whole lot of problems. All our members are messed up. I'm messed up. We're all messed up. We're all struggling. That's all true. But Paul says, I know it's all true. I'm going to talk about that. I'll write you another letter. <laughs> but this is the reality. You are the pillar and the ground of the truth in the earth. The church is the means that God uses to maintain and propagate his truth in the world. It is the support of that truth, the pillar. It is the foundation of the truth that is revealed, of course, in Jesus. And we should say the truth that Paul speaks about here is not a series of propositions or doctrines or systematic theology. It's more than the proclamation of the news about Jesus. Rather, he is speaking about Jesus himself, who is the way, the truth, and the life. The truth reveals Jesus as the way of communion with the triune God, and Jesus is that way. And that's the way in which we have communion with the living God in his triune glory, in his perfections. And that is found only in communion with the body of Christ, the church of the living God. Remember that John in John 1 is talking about the Logos. And some commentators say, yeah, he's, he's, in, he's embracing the Greek philosophy of the Logos. You know. Well, he's talking about Jesus. He's not at all referring to the Greek philosophy, even though he uses the word that the Greeks would, would be familiar with. Paul reminds Timothy that Jesus is inseparably joined to his church. The word comes to us as the flesh and the body of Jesus himself, who is found only in communion with the body. Calvin comments on this verse. Uh, he says, God does not personally descend from heaven to us, nor does he daily send angels for the purpose of promulgating the truth, but he uses the ministry of pastors to whom for this very end he has granted ordination. In other words, pastors represent Jesus. And Jesus himself says that when his ministers proclaim his word truly, it is, it is he that is speaking through them. So he tells the disciples, for example, go out, proclaim the truth, and you tell people, if they hear you, if they listen to you and receive what you say, they're receiving me. If they will not receive you, they are not receiving me. I will not be separated from my representatives. 
the church then becomes then the representatives of Jesus. And Calvin goes on to say it is through the ministry of the word, through the proclamation of the truth given to the church, that the church becomes the mother of all saints. He says, is not the church the mother of all saints? regenerating them by the word of God, rearing and training them throughout their whole life, establishing and carrying them onward even to their proper maturity. And for the same reason does she also, she is designated as the pillar of the truth since the office of imparting spiritual instruction which God has committed to her is the sole provision for preserving the truth so that it does not perish from the minds of men. This is how the truth is maintained. This is how Jesus is set forth to the world. Now, he doesn't, where is he physically? Well, physically he's at the right hand of the Father. But by his spirit, he comes and manifests himself through the church, through his people, which is the, which is the body of Christ, through the church, and that's how he is set forth and manifested to the world. So the church, by God's blessing and power, preserves the truth of God in the earth. It is the only place where the word of life the revelation of Jesus and thus life itself can be found. Paul goes to, going to call the church the household of God. He uses language that the Jews used about the temple. The temple was God's house. Paul says, no, not anymore. The church is the temple. It is the new and glorious household. The church is the true and ultimate glorified temple, the palace of the great king where he's always graciously present, where he dispenses life and blessing to the members of the household. And this view of the church is confirmed in all of Paul's epistles. This is assumed and expressly ex declared. So in his letter to the Ephesians, he states that we, they have been blessed, he says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And this is so because the church is the body of Christ, the fullness of him that fills all in all. And then in chapter 5, you remember, he says that members of the church are members of Christ's body. And he goes on to underscore this by using the language which is used to describe the union of husband and wife. He, Paul says it this way. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. He is saying there's a, there's the, there's his, there's a union between you and Jesus. That union is real. It's of, it's, it's a, you become one flesh with Jesus in that sense. Just as if, just like you become one flesh with your wife. You, you and your wife are one body. You become one. Now interestingly, how did you become one? You become one through the ritual of the church, the declaration that God has joined you together, and whom God has joined together, let no man keep asunder. You are one because God's declaration made you one. That ritual that you went through changed your life. It transformed you. You were a single guy. Now you're a husband. You've entered into a new office. You have new responsibilities. You have now a legal position you didn't have before. You were transformed. That's why you get to go home or go off to, a, to a, a, a nice place and have your first sexual relationship. The fruit of this reality grows into a maturity so that your oneness is expressed and manifested and it bears fruit. But the oneness was, was established at the ceremony. What happens to the church? You become a member of the body of Christ at baptism. 
Now you grow up in that, so you mature in that union just as a husband and wife mature in their union. So you learn and you grow and you're able to, pretty soon you're able to serve real faithfully. Our children grow up and they rejoice. They learn how to sing and pray and worship and they learn how to serve. They grow in that union that was established at baptism, but that's what Paul is talking about. He says, you've got to understand, think in terms of this, realize, re reorder your thinking in a way. And we need to see, see this is true of every church, every faithful church. Paul is not saying this is true of the churches when considered as a whole and only by those who are elect from the foundation of the world. He re recognized that there are many true churches of Christ and, we, and yet we say that every local church has full communion with the triune God. And thus, all that is said of the church in the Bible is true of each individual congregation in every locality that is faithful to Jesus to maintain the word and the sacraments and, of course, the discipline of the family. That becomes the true church of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wherever the faith is embraced in sincerity, wherever there is communion with the Lord at his table, there is the church in the full sense of the word, though it is imperfect. And because of that imperfection, we don't like to think of it as a real church. You know, The real church is only those who are elect from the foundation of the world, who will all, we know will all spend eternity with Jesus. That's the real church. But can you... Can you go visit that church? <laughs> that, that really means, it turns out that that means nothing. Because I can't see that church. And that's why, it, that's why the theologians said, yes, there is such a thing, if you want to speak of it this way, there is an invisible aspect to the church in the sense that we can't see all of our brothers and sisters. They, they will gather tomorrow with us and we'll all enter into the throne room of heaven as we worship, and we won't be able to see them. We'll just be able to see one another here, but we know they're there with us, even though we can't see them. They're invisible to us, though they're real. We can't see the whole number of the redeemed from one end of history to another. That church, if that's the way you think of the invisible church, then that church doesn't exist yet, not only in the mind of God. Paul is not writing to that church. He's writing to a church just like this church and the church in Louisiana, the church that has faithful, faithful people and has some people that are really, really struggling just to be, just to keep their heads over, above water and some people that are, that are just, looks like they're gonna fall out. And we're doing everything we can to strengthen them and they, they still are probably gonna fall off the wagon somewhere along the way. That's the church he's talking about. That is the church of the living God. That is the household of God. That is the pillaring ground of the truth, even though it doesn't look like it. It looks weak. It looks like something that can be mocked, and they do mock us. And yet, we believe the Bible. So Jesus, so Paul is talking not about the invisible church, but to the real, local, visible, concrete people that have real physical members, that church. God, the, this view, you see, places God's people, if you think of the church only as the elect from all ends, all ages, or all of those throughout history, 
then you, if that's the church that Paul is addressing, then how can you know that any of this applies to you? Do you know you were chosen from before the foundation of the world? You're absolutely certain about that decree? The answer is no, we can't know that decree. And if, you, if you're sitting around wondering, am I one of the elect? You're asking a bad question, the wrong question, in fact, that the Bible never tells you to ask. That's not a question you can ask if you're saying, what is God's decree? You can't know that. And that's never to be asked because the secret things belong to God. You can trust that the Lord knows what he's doing and he will do all his holy will. The apostle doesn't use the term elect in that way. He obviously understands, like we do, God's absolutely sovereign. He has foreordained all things, including all those who will be saved eternally. That's all absolutely true. But when he uses the word elect, he's using it like, like God did in the Old Testament. Who are the elect? Well, it was Israel. They were called out. They were the ones specially chosen by God to be a special possession, who would be his, the light of God in the world. They were to be the bread of life to the world. They were to show forth the world, his glories, by proclaiming his word, living faithfully, giving an example of what life really looks like. They were the elect of God. Now, were they all predestined to spend eternity with God? The answer is no. And Paul would go, why do you use elect that way? I'm not talking about that. He writes to the Thessalonians, he says, I know your election. What does he mean by that? Did Paul have some, did God say, Paul, I'm going to let you look at the book, you know. And you, and you can look at all the names that you know, and then you can go tell them, I know your election. That's not true. Paul didn't know the decree. And if you had said, Paul, how can you say that? He'd go, what do you mean? How can I say that? These are all baptized people. I know their baptism. I know they're joined to Christ. I know they've been called out of the world, given God's name, marked with God's seal. They belong to God. The called out ones, that's what the ecclesia is. The church is the called out assembly. The baptized people, the people who gather in God's name. And if you were to say, then, then he goes, after he calls you elect, then he goes, now you, let me tell you something. I don't want you to fall away in unbelief like Israel did. And so modern Presbyterians go, boy, Paul, you're an Arminian. <laughs> he just called me elect, and then he warns me not to fall away in unbelief. I can't fall away because I'm elect. Paul says, you don't understand election. You don't understand how God's works in history. God called, he saved all the people of Israel. And yet with most of them, he was not well pleased. They were all redeemed. They were all baptized. They were all called out. And because of unbelief, they fell in the wilderness and God, their carcasses dropped in the deserts, he says. He doesn't use election in the same way we think of it theologically. We've got a special stipulated theological definition, just like we do for many things. And that's not necessarily bad at all, unless you read that definition into the text then you get a problem. If we're talking systematic theology and logical theology and all of that, we're fine, because that is all true. Systematically, you know, if I'm building a theology that's consistent, then of course that's true. If you, if you import those definitions into the text, you've got a problem when Paul says, I know your election, and he calls the people the elect and chosen ones, as Peter does. You're reading that, if, if you're reading that with that theological definition, 
you've got a conundrum on your hands because Peter and Paul clearly are not using that term in this way. They don't know God's decree, but they do know the church. They do know the people of God that God has called out by His grace and mercy, has marked them with His sign, has given them His name, has brought them into His communion through His Son. So when Paul and the apostles speak of things that are true of the church, they're speaking of all who are members of specific churches in Rome, in Ephesus, in Thessalonica, in Philippi, in Colossae, in the churches of Galatia, in Corinth, and those that Peter addresses in Asia Minor that are scattered away, the, the, the persecuted, that have been scattered away and have formed churches in those various distant places. Paul writes in Romans, and listen, so you have, when you think of that, you listen again to the epistles, read through the epistles and think, okay, he's writing to a specific congregation that had members that looked like us. They didn't talk like us, they used a different language, they had different issues, some of them. Many of them, they had the same issues we had. They were struggling with a wife that had problems and the wife struggling with a husband that's blockheaded and children are running all over and we can't control them. They had the same problems, but these are real people that he's writing to. And they're just like us. So remember, here's, and so now listen to what Paul says to the Romans. He says, he writes, not just to the elect in the sense of theologically elect, he says, I'm writing to all who are in Rome, all who are members of the church. All of them, he says, are beloved of God, called saints. They have received the love of God and the Spirit of God, he says. Christ has died for them, he says. And consequently, they've been reconciled to God. And he has no hesitation in saying that this is true of every one of those members of the church. And he says he knows this because they've been baptized in Romans 6. They've been baptized, and therefore he knows they have died to sin. They've been baptized into Christ. Christ died to sin. They have died to sin. They've been united to Christ, so Christ was raised from the dead. They have been raised from the dead in him. Their old man has been put to death so that they no longer are slaves to sin. Paul makes it plain that this is true of everyone in, church, in the church in Rome, not just some of them, everyone. He doesn't say, if you truly believe and you've been truly born again, if you've been truly converted, this is true of you. He says, no, this is true of you all. You must understand it. Now, some would say in that light, well, you're, you're, you're overstating that because there are false sons in the church. There are hypocrites who fall away. You ought to know that. Well, yes, in fact, I do know that. And Paul knew that. And that's why Paul recognizes that reality and for that reason he warns God's people against following the examples of the Israelites and the Jews who are, they see all around them who are rejecting the gospel. So in Romans 11, Paul says, you must continue in the faith. Do not be like Israel. The Jews have been cut off from the tree of life because of their unbelief. In Romans 11, he says, God has been good to those who have been grafted in to the covenant tree but you must continue in his goodness, he says, or else you will be cut off like the Jews were cut off. And the Jews can be grafted in again if they repent. And God shows his mercy by grafting them back in after he cut them all off. Paul knows all about that. Don't act like he's a bad theologian. You see similar things in the letter to 1 Corinthians of all churches. We're bad, our church. 
and I used to think, we're the worst church ever, until I read 1 Corinthians. <laughs> and then, oh, this church is pretty bad, man. There's a lot of problems here. And, of course, we ended up having the same kind of things happen because this is a church. It's a normal church. And Paul, when he opens the epistle, he says, he says I want to address you all because you are the sanctified in Christ Jesus. You are called saints. The grace of God has been given to you in Christ, he says in chapter 1. They have been enriched in everything, he says, by Jesus. They come short in no gift, he says. And they will be confirmed to the end so that they are blameless in the day of Christ, he says. They have been called into the fellowship of his Son. The fellowship of Jesus has, the fellowship that Jesus has with the Father and the Spirit, they also partake of that fellowship. Jesus was crucified for them and they were baptized into his name. They have been saved, he says. For them, Christ has become the wisdom of God, the righteousness of God, sanctification and redemption. And then he goes, in, goes on in chapter 6. He says their bodies are members of Christ. Therefore, they dare not ever join them to the harlots. And when they do, what's well, interesting, how does Paul do? So then he knows that they've been, some of the members have been doing that. And he's said all of this about them. And knowing all the while, there are some people in Corinth who have been going to visit prostitutes. And I've got to address it. Now, how would a modern minister address that? A modern reform minister. Many times he would say, this proves that you ain't born again. This proves it. That you go to a prostitute. You ain't a, you ain't a Christian. You ain't a, you're, you, you're, going, to, you're going to hell because you've you got to be born again. You clearly haven't been born again. That's not what Paul says. He doesn't say, I don't think you're really a Christian. He doesn't say that. He said, listen to what he says. He says, how can you join the members of Christ to a harlot? My problem is not that I think you're not born again. He said, I, I'm not, that, he said, in fact, I know you have been born again in the sense of baptismal. You've been baptized. You've died and been resurrected with Jesus. So I know that. That's what I know. And that's my problem. My problem is you're a member of Christ. You're a member of his body. How can you, therefore, join Jesus in immorality in, and, and bring Jesus into this immorality that you've been practicing? That is offensive to everybody under, and God under and everyone under heaven. Now, that's interesting, you see, because he doesn't deny the realities of the baptisms that they've had and what that meant for them. He uses that to show them how, how great a condemnation is going to fall on them if they don't repent and live as members of the body of Christ truly. You see, if, if he had dealt with them saying, I don't think you have a new heart, what would they have said? Well, often they say exactly what people say to us when we say something like that to them and say, how can you judge my heart? Can you see my heart? You don't know. You're not God. And they are right. I can't see their heart. I really don't know what God has done or not done. What I do know, they've been baptized. That's what I know. And I know if you've been baptized, you belong to Jesus. I, and I know that all the blessings and benefits that Jesus has purchased have been given over to you. Why under heaven are you living like you're living? 
That makes no sense. And I also know if you don't repent, you are going to bust hell wide open. That's what I know. You going to argue with that? The answer is no, because that's objective reality that is not arguable. So that when I had my Roman Catholic friend come and say that, you know, I wonder if I'm a Christian. I said, are you baptized? He goes, well, yeah. Like, I ain't a pagan Protestant like the rest of you people. We actually get baptized when we're children, unlike many of you people. And I said, so all, that's all I need to know. So why are you getting drunk on Friday night? You got an explanation for that? He thought I was going to start judging his heart. And he was ready to fire back about me judging him and presuming to know his heart and presuming to know God's plan for him and all that. I said, I don't really care about that because I can't know that. What I do know is you're baptized and that means you have an obligation to be holy, harmless, and undefiled. And that's not true. That's not what you're living. And he goes, you're right. I said, so what are you going to do? Well, I guess I need to repent. Bingo. Give him the prize. Because you can't argue with that. You start talking about somebody's heart, you're going to get in trouble. What Paul, Paul never does that. He, he deals with what he knows to be true that cannot be argued. And he says, I, I got a big problem with what you guys are doing. You're, you're joining Jesus into fornication. And God is going to be, God is very angry with you. And you need to repent before the sun goes down because you are in grave danger. That's how he deals with them. And he goes on. After that, in the same chapter, and he goes on, he says, those who are joined to Christ share in the same spirit of Jesus. Their bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And they are not their own because they have been bought with a price. And therefore, you must glorify God in your body, he says. You want to argue with me on this? You see how he comes at them on this. He says, here's what's true of you. And you better take that seriously. You better take your baptism seriously. You think that's not a big deal. You think it's just a picture, a symbol, a sign. God will curse you for that. That is a blasphemy against God's grace and mercy that has been given to you in baptism. And you act like it's no big deal. And you act like it's... It doesn't affect you. It doesn't have any effect on your life. He says, I'm telling you, you better understand what baptism means. You are united to Jesus. Your body is not your own, therefore. It is a member of the body of Christ, and therefore you better use it faithfully and holy, in a holy way. Baptism is real and true. And Paul takes it so seriously. It is this glorious reality. And therefore, it is a powerful argument against sin, unbelief, presumption, and rebellion. And he again resorts in 1 Corinthians 10 to the example of apostate Israel, warning against presumption and rebellion. He says Israel was saved out of Egypt. They were baptized in the Red Sea. God delivered them and gave them life. And yet, he destroyed them all in their unbelief when they rebelled against him. That's what he's going to do to you. And then he goes on with that shocking statement in chapter 12. In spite of all the stuff he's talked about, he then goes on, he says, For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that body being many are one body, so also is Christ. 
And that is, Calvin says, that's the, one of the most shocking statements in the Bible because he identifies the church with Christ, which is exactly the way you have to think of the church. And he's talking about the local church, that church in Corinth, that church, with guys who are going to visit prostitutes, that church is the body of Christ. Peter points out in the first epistle that it is through the church that we participate in the life of Christ because of its union with Jesus Peter describes the church not as a human organization, but as a mystical, glorious, living organism. He says, we have come to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen, elect by God and precious. And you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Coming to Jesus, we come to the stone of life, the rock of our salvation. As the psalmist says, Peter's picking up on all that. He says, that's what you've done. You know, you come to the rock. You've come to the rock that gives life. You're the, you're, you've been joined to the living stones and the living stone, and now you have become a living stone. Why? Because you've been joined to the living stone. Where'd your life come from? It is directly related to my union with the living stone. That now, because of my union with Jesus, the living stone, I am now also a living stone. But I can't walk away from Jesus and keep that life. My source of life is Jesus. That is the living stone. And we now have become living stones being built together as this glorious, amazing, life-giving household. Temple. So by coming to Jesus, we become living stones, partake of his life, become a living part of the living temple, the new temple that God is building in his son. This temple is not a lifeless building filled with lifeless stones, but an organic, living, spirit-filled, life-giving body. And this, of course, again, is not a new idea. Paul is simply showing that, that the church is the new temple. It's the fulfillment of everything the tabernacle and the temple signified. The temple and the tabernacle not only represented and was God's household, but it, it represented the people of God. You, you, might, you might remember that the way the temple is described, the words are legs and arms, it has ribs, it has, it's like a body. It's described that way in the scriptures. And so it's pointing to the fact that the temple, God's house, is actually made up of his people, his body. And that temple represents that body, which is why you had to cleanse it. It had to be sprinkled. You had to sprinkle blood on it to, re to redeem it. And then it, it has to be cleansed from time to time. The temple is always, has always been a sign of the living body of God's people. And so Peter uses that analogy to these Jews that have been scattered abroad. He says, wherever you are, when you are in these churches, the churches that, you've been, that have been brought together by the Lord, as you've gathered with your, with your brothers and sisters, you become the temple, the glorious temple, the ultimate temple that God has always intended to have. Jesus identifies himself with his people. He will not be separated from his people. And we could go on through the epistles and see the same thing on every page. The church, the visible church, the only one that can actually be addressed and exhorted and rebuked and corrected, by the way. That church is the fulfillment of God's purposes the triune God's purposes from the beginning. It's not a means to the end. It is 
the end. That is what God intended. It's God's gracious purpose for the world. His, the whole purpose of history is to have this glorious bride to present to his son at the end of history. What is he doing? Well, he's building up this glorious bride that's going to be without spot in the end, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and given to his son. That's the whole purpose. The church is, the, is what salvation is, you see. That's what is going on. That's the purpose of redemption throughout history. And you see, if this is so, and it is, then the church is, if the church is the body of Christ, if the church is the family of God, if the church is the bride of the Son, joined in one flesh with Him, then nothing is equal to it. Everything finds its true meaning and purpose in relationship to the church. So your marriage, for example, is not the ultimate reality. Your marriage is a picture. It's a symbol, Paul says. He says when he's giving instructions in Ephesians 5 about husbands loving your wives, wives loving your husbands, he makes it clear. He says, oh wait, he says, I'm talking about Christ in the church here. At the end of that, do you remember? He comes back and says, I'm, of course I'm talking about Christ in the church. It's a great mystery. But you need to understand that your marriage has to conform to the ultimate reality. Your marriage is a symbol. It's a picture of this ultimate reality that relates to how Jesus loves his church and how his church loves him. That's the ultimate marriage. That's the real thing. Your marriage is kind of a, a faint picture of that, but you want it to be a bright picture of that. Your marriage gains meaning through the church, not apart from the church. If you separate yourself from the church, your marriage will be a mess. And you say, well, it's a mess in the church. Okay, it may be. But God, at least you're in the place where it can be corrected and it can grow. You humble yourself, listen to instruction, receive the word, repent of your sins, quit being selfish, each of you. Your marriage will grow and your marriage will be happy. But it will be because you are connected to the true marriage that you learn. That's how you learn to marry. That's how you learn to be married, by being connected to the true husband, the divine husband, and you learn, then you're sustained by him, and you learn then how to sustain a wife, and you learn how to respond to a husband because you've been in the church, you've been trained and disciplined by the church so that you can be fruitful in your marriage and be a blessing to the world. This is why your family will be a disaster if you separate from the church. If, you're, if the church is not more of a priority than your family, you're messing up. Your family is not sufficient of itself. And this is one of the problems, one of the problems with homeschooling, and, and I love homeschooling. We did it, most of, our, most of the education of our children. But the, one of the problems is we have this idea that I can teach my children, therefore I can prepare my children. I don't need anybody else to do it. When you know you really do need everybody else, because you, you, you sometimes we even called in people to help teach, help teach. We need other people. We can't, we're not sufficient even to teach our own children all that they need to know to live. How much more is that true in the bigger picture of preparing them for life? They have to be members of the church. They have to be members of God's family. If our family's gonna function properly, it's gotta be members of God's family. Our family learns how to live from God's family. God's family is the ultimate family. That's the important family. My family's secondary. Therefore, my family may perish from the earth. And I'll be very sorry about that but everything will be fine. You'll be okay. You'll be okay without the Wilkins in the world. You're gonna go fine, you'll be happy, 
You'll still have fun times. You're going to prosper. You're going to live and bring glory to God. You don't need us, but you need the church. If God's family lives, if God's family dies, we're done. Your family can die, and we will all be sorry, but we'll be fine. If God's family dies, nobody's fine. Think clearly. Your, church, your family is not a priority. Not, the, not a priority over the church. And don't teach your children that it is. So when we go on vacation, we find a place to go worship with God's people. Not, we don't get a vacation from the family. We don't want to be unfaithful to the family that keeps us, our family alive. Earthly rulers and kingdoms are to reflect the glories of the holy city of God, the light of the world and refuge of the nations. If our countries and kingdoms are to be blessings in the world instead of blights in the world, then they must be discipled by the church. That's why Jesus said you've got to make the nations disciples. What did he say first to do, though? Remember? Baptism first. Baptize them and then teach them. You're made a disciple not by instruction. You're made a disciple by, by baptism. Then you're instructed in how to be a disciple. You're made a husband at the ceremony. Then you learn how to be a husband. You're made a, a, a child of God at baptism. Then you learn how to be a faithful child of God as you grow up. You're taught by your parents and by the church in how to be those things. Earthly rulers are the same way. They have to be baptized. They need to be Christians. The world needs to be discipled. Otherwise, the kings and rulers will be enemies of righteousness, as we see. Why is that so? Because they're not submitting to the king. They're not part of the church. Salvation can only be found in union with the church simply because all life resides in Jesus. Apart from him, there is no life. And so apart from his body, there can be no salvation. The church is the world's hope because it is the kingdom and household and family, the bride and the body of Christ. And that's why Cyprian says, let me read it again. Not, this is a different quote. Therefore, he, would, he who would find Christ must first of all find the church. How would one know where Christ and his faith were if one did not know where his believers are? And he who would know something of Christ must not trust himself or build his own bridges into heaven through his own reason, but he must go to the church, visit, and ask of the same. For outside of the Christian church, there is no truth, no Christ, no salvation. Amen. That's not Roman Catholic teaching. The Roman Catholics, in fact, departed from that. This is Protestant faithful Reformation teaching reflected by a church father. Geddes McGregor, the great uh, church historian, made this observation. He said, in the Reformed tradition, ecclesiology is closely linked to Christology because when the divines argued about the church, they felt they were arguing about that which is closest to Christ and inseparable from him. It was not only that Christ and the church were correlative ideas, it was rather that they were, in the sight of these divines, one living reality. Now he's talking there about the Reformed church, not about the, the larger church. But he says, no, the Reformed have always understood this. Well, we go, well, not anymore, brother. That's not true now. But unfortunately, that is our heritage, and it's reflected in all the confessions, every one of them. Why don't we think that way? Because we don't believe the Bible. We don't follow our confessions. We've departed from our heritage, whether we, li whether we like to admit it or not. 
we have to drill this into our skulls because I didn't grow up with this view and it's very difficult for me to maintain this perspective and so I have to keep reminding myself over and over, reading the Bible, listening to what the Bible says over and over. Because, and we also have to know, not only because I didn't grow up having this drilled into my skull like I wish, but we have to do this because what we see with our eyes. We, we are, we're too familiar with the, church, the local church that we're a part of and the local churches we've been a part of, we remember. William Willimon, who was nearby, he said this, when people complain of the church, when people complain that the church is preoccupied with money or closed-minded or defensive or, the, or lethargic, they're usually revealing their discomfort that the church is indeed a body because that's the way our bodies are. Bodies sweat, bodies smell bad at times, they have blemishes, they're disproportionate features. Bodies have members that get injured and sick and weak and broken and need care and healing. Bodies grow old and grouchy and cantankerous and sensitive and provoke lots of complaints and cause a lot of trouble. Bodies don't always respond well to stress and trial. They don't always look like they're supposed to. There's a reason after all that God gives us bodies. He gives you a body so that you can be sympathetic with His church. You know your own weaknesses. Be patient with the weaknesses of your brothers. We are all weak. We all have struggles so that we can understand and grow in sympathy with the church and with God's dealings with her and with us, of course, as part of that church. Willeman points out that some churches have the bodies of infants stumbling and crawling but full of promise, though it's undisciplined and often untrained. He says some churches have the bodies of adolescents. They trip over themselves and knock things over and mess things up in their exuberance to do something good. They're ready to take on the world and having a clue about the difficulty of the task that faces them. And then some churches, he said, have aged, declining bodies. They have proud memories and a distinguished past but are now almost ready to keel over. And sometimes they become cynical and bitter over their inability to recover their glory days. That's exactly right. This is how the body looks at various times depending on where you are and for, and for better or for worse. This is the bride that Jesus has chosen for himself. And that's why people want an invisible church. The visible one is a lot of problems. But this is the mother, this is the new Eve. You are the new Eve, the mother of all living. It's a big and often dysfunctional family. It's hard to love and honor, and that's why God puts you in it. He puts you in, you think of your family and you create the crazy uncle and the embarrassing aunt and all the others, and you, you, you have to love them because they're yours. You know, R.C. Sproul used to say, you gotta stick with the stuck. <laughs> You're stuck, stick with it. And that's true, and go, God, you didn't, you didn't choose your family, God puts you in a family. And it has all these problems and you have to handle it. You have to, you have to deal with it. And it's, it's distressing and it, it's aggravating. And sometimes it's exhilarating and happy, but many times it's just tough and you're just trying to make it through. All right. So now that God has put you in a family, his family, with all the same problems and you are to be patient. You've got to learn to be like him. And how can you learn to be like him unless you face these kinds of, deal with these kinds of families? You've got to learn to love people that are unlovely. You gotta be like God. He loves you and you're unlovely. So you gotta to learn to love unlovely people. So he puts you in the church with a lot of unlovely people. 
you got to learn to be patient. How can you be patient unless somebody aggravates you every day? I feel just really thankful to be an instrument in your sanctification. <laughs> and I, you know, that's ex but it, that's exactly true. You know this is true. This is how God deals with you. Salvation is an ongoing, dynamic thing, not static. It means that we're always learning, always growing, always, uh, always maturing in understanding, and that demands humility and patience and faith. God's church is the creation of His Son. It is His bride, and ultimately, it is the life of the world. Nothing is more important than what we do in the church, even though it doesn't look like it's important. Okay. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, again for your blessings. Help us to understand these things more clearly and continue to teach us for Jesus' sake. Amen.